Thanks for tuning in. This is Kim Nitschke. This is our first episode of the Medical Accountant Podcast. We're going to be bringing you episodes every week where we delve into the lives of medical practitioners. We're choosing leaders in their space in each field. They're going to be talking finance and they're also talking about their medical career, the whole journey through the medical profession. And we're going to be pulling in also interesting things about what they like doing outside of medicine as well. Just a bit of a background about me. Um, I am an accountant. I've been an accountant for 20 years. I studied at the University of Adelaide in South Australia. I'm a qualified chartered accountant. I specialize in small businesses and in particular medical practitioners. This week's guest is Dr. Douglas Fowlbush. Doug is an anaesthetist and he's also a medical consultant. He does lots of interesting things outside of medicine. Tune in. I really hope that you enjoy our first episode. Well, let's get straight into it. Talking all things medical, all things finance. That sort of procedure would be incredibly stressful. They stop breathing. Fucking problem, eventually. How many people are you impacting the lives of? All right, thank you for tuning in. We've got another podcast episode today. We've got a special guest with us and we are sitting in his consulting room. Uh, we've got Dr. Doug Fowlbush, who is an anaesthetist. Um, Doug and I, we've been friends for quite some time and today is the first time we've actually been able to sit down and record our conversation, talking all things medical, all things finance. Thanks for coming along today, Doug. Really happy to have you as part of this. Thank you for having me. Now, um, Doug, can we go right back to the start? Um, now, medicine is so hard to get into. You managed to be the shining light in your class, must have been ducks at your school, and you launched straight into it. Can you just tell us about that? Were you top of the class at school? That's a great question, Kim, uh, and there's a couple of interesting points around that. One of which was, uh, to answer your question, yes, I was top of the school in that year, partly because one of the really bright people left to go to another school the previous year, but we won't take the gloss off the achievement nonetheless. Interestingly, I didn't go straight into medicine. I did a year of, uh, marine, of uh, science at uni because I wanted to be a marine biologist, and I thought studying turtles uh, and living on a beach would be a great lifestyle. And uh, partly through the first year, I realised that that was really... Uh, romantic dream and uh, and I had the marks to get into medicine and it seemed a, um, that it would be a, a shame, it would be remiss of me to pass up that opportunity. So I, I made the decision halfway through that year to uh, take up a medical position and started, started that the following year. Fantastic. Now, then, so you did your normal medical training and then you went into anaesthetics? Correct. Why, why did you choose that? Well, I've always been interested in, in whole body medicine rather than body part medicine, and there's a couple of ways of doing that. Um, just to backtrack a little bit with my medical studies, I did half of that in Hobart and half of it in Adelaide, and in the middle of it I went and taught skiing in Austria because uh, that was much more interesting at the time. But um, uh, nonetheless, I, I pursued the, the studies because that was the, the sensible thing to do. And, and I found my interest was more around... Um, making complex systems uh, comprehensible and the body is quite a complex uh, thing and rather than looking at one body part and simplifying it that way I was much more interested in the, the whole context of the body and how the systems work together and how that person uh, interacts with their environment to to um, have different disease expressions in different times and places so that's where my interest lay 
And I was going to be a, a country GP because that offers a bit of everything. I thought, great lifestyle, uh, really interesting work, a huge variety of, of different uh, cases and so forth. And then I had the good fortune to, to meet a girl from the country and uh, and we subsequently married and her interest in where to, where to live wasn't in the country. So uh, so I had to rethink uh, perhaps uh, that, that career aspect and other ways of doing whole body medicine are through uh, intensive care and, and some others. And I actually... Uh, joined anesthesia to do intensive care training because there were that, that was a way of, of doing it and a more practical way of doing it than the alternative route, which was more theoretical. And I uh, found to my surprise, two things happened. One, I loved ICU, did a couple of years of it, but looked at the lifestyle there and thought when I'm what, what would be now my age, uh, that uh, that lifestyle would be very challenging and leads, would lead to burnout. And the other thing I discovered was that anaesthesia was much more interesting and enjoyable than I'd expected. And, uh, and so I, I completed the anaesthesia training and, and, uh, and put the intensive care training to one side. Do you do epidurals? I do, yes. Yeah. Okay. I just remember at my three children's birth, that epidural experience was just um, such a stressful part of the birth Um you know, my wife was on the operating t- table in an immense amount of pain, moving around, and then we had the doctor, I won't mention his name because he didn't do a very good job, um, trying to absolutely nail it with that needle in the back while she's, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so I find that that sort of procedure would be incredibly stressful. What's, what's your experience with that? Do you just, does it, is it something that gets easier over time? Very much so. As with anything, once you do a certain number, then more of it becomes routine. Uh, and we used to say when training that once you've done 50, you had a reasonable degree of competence, and once you've done 100, you were, you were you know, much more comfortable. Uh, there were a lot fewer things that were new for that particular epidural. Um, and then as you do more of them, then you discriminate between first-time mothers and second-time mothers, and, uh, and also you have tools to deal with those difficult situations where the mother's very uncomfortable and, and having difficulty uh, staying still, for example. So uh, you develop strategies to, to make it easier, and uh, but nonetheless it, it can be a, and is a, a potentially stressful occasion because you are putting a sharp object near someone's spinal cord and that obviously is difficult for uh, patients and partners because it's uh, you know, not something that you do every day. Got to talk about general anaesthetics too. This fascinates me, this component of your job. When you actually put someone under a general anaesthetic, they stop breathing. Right. <laughs> a big problem, <laughs> potentially. Well, if, if you're not expecting it, it would be. That's right. But you have some sort of machine you plug into them. and Yeah, so an, an operating theatre is a little like a mobile intensive care. So we have a, a ventilator machine that um, – has all sorts of different settings to do everything from just provide oxygen to assist the patient breathing because half the time the patient will actually be still be breathing on their own, although not necessarily to a sufficient degree, so the machine can assist them. And then the other half of the time where the patient does completely stop breathing, whether because we require them not to or, or just as an effect, a normal effect of the drugs, uh, then the machine uh, takes over the, the breathing for them completely. Absolutely, yeah, there all sorts of alarms in them. And again, it's a bit like uh, being in an aeroplane, a lot of um, visual displays on, on the effects of the ventilation and how adequate it is. And 
uh, alarms when if things should parameters should start to get out of uh, out of normal ranges, and, uh, and a whole a whole variety of things that we can we do and monitor. And you're not part of a group. You um, operate as a sole practitioner. Correct. And because you've got such a good name in the industry, um, specialists come and book you for their lists. Is that the way it works? Well, the, the way it works, I mean, most of my work that I have now, I've had for, for many years. Um, it's, it's regular work with regular surgeons. And one thing that we value in private healthcare is having that regular relationship because we get to know each other and the way that we work and, uh, and also the staff around us. So... An important part of a safety process is to have familiarity, not just with equipment, but with people and teams and in the interactions within teams. So uh, when I first started anaesthesia, I was in a group practice and that was a, a good way to start because you get exposed to a wide variety of uh, practitioners and hospitals and you have colleagues to um, refer to if you have concerns or, or just learnings. And uh, But then after about... In fact, what happened about, at about the nine-year mark, uh, I had some health issues that led me to reevaluate how I wanted to conduct my professional practice. And after many months and discussions with the group, uh, we decided that that would best occur if, uh, as, a, as, a, as a solo practitioner, which I have to say um, I did with some reservation, but I've really enjoyed it because uh, it's hard to undervalue being, being your own boss. And now you're also branching out into another aspect. Um, you're doing some consulting work. Can you just tell us a little bit about what that involves and and what that looks like? Well, I think it comes back to my interest in complex systems and healthcare is a terribly complex beast and is not a design system. It grew up from single practitioners and, and small um, hospitals, which were little more than converted houses. And now suddenly, some centuries later, we have this huge industry that uh, uh, is not centrally coordinated. So that was the first thing that prompted me to, to want to make a difference. Healthcare is becoming less affordable, as everyone would be aware, and I think medical practitioners can play a part in helping it to become more efficient and affordable. Uh, and the other aspect to that is that it's, it's a paradox in healthcare that we look after people, patients, but we don't particularly look after our own very well. And it's not necessarily a terribly enjoyable experience working inside healthcare. It's enjoyable treating patients, but uh, a lot of inefficiencies arise because we don't focus as much on ensuring it's a good work experience for staff. Uh, We focus more on a good patient experience. And uh, it's been found through improving the the staff experience that it actually helps people to become more efficient and uh, make fewer mistakes. And these are important tools that we need going forward to help healthcare be uh, cheaper and safer. Now let's move into finance. Um, Let's just talk finance for a moment. Um, Properties versus shares, what's your slant? Do you have a preference on which one you like more than the other? It's a hard one to answer because because of the time component. Uh, I think the advantage... For me, with shares, it is that they are more liquid. It's easy to move them in and out, um, and but with property, there's there's greater certainty. So I think, in my view, they have an important part, and both have an important part in, in a portfolio. And uh, if your time frame is is uh, ten to twenty years, say, then property can form a big part of that. Uh, but uh, once property investment perhaps has has run its course, then you're probably better off 
either moving that money into the share market or, or conversely moving into another property perhaps. What's your attitude towards debt? Uh, well, debt's like any tool, is, is, can be good and bad. There's good debt and bad debt. Uh, debt's a very useful way to accelerate returns, but again, needs to be done with safety. So having no debt is the safest, but uh, will, uh, won't yield as quick a returns as having some debt, and conversely, having high debt, whilst it might yield higher returns, also with high risk, and again, you can result in losing everything. So there's a, there's a balance. And do you like uh, self-managed super funds? What's your attitude towards them? Again, I, I like having a sense of control, and as such, I do like have, as, the idea of self-managed super funds. Uh, obviously, there's a, a size of funds under management that you would want before going to the trouble of managing it yourself. Uh, but I think it's a, a good transition for people to consider once their super balance rises to a certain point where it become viable to manage it yourself because you're still taking professional advice and, and guidance, but you have a little more latitude perhaps to craft the fund in a way that reflects your values and at the end of the day it is your asset that's reflecting your life experiences and, and providing for your, your future. So you've got your own SMSF? I do, yes. Okay. I've had it for a number of years. And is that you, you have a financial planner who, who coordinates it and takes care of it and is just ticking right. along nicely? That's right. Yes, yeah, so we do uh, monthly minor reviews with uh, uh, movements, potential movements in and out. We, we don't, it's not a, a heavily traded uh, portfolio by any means, but um, we prefer to have regular meetings just to assess the performance, look at what's coming up, and then a, a more formal review every quarter and obviously annually as well. And... Not just super, but um, over your whole investment portfolio, what, looking back, was probably your best investment? The, in both cases, it's actually been shares. There was one quite early on, uh, which was actually the first round of Telstra, uh, which people would remember. That was, that, was a, that was a good one to get on board. More recently, uh, it's been a fund called Magellan, who uh, your listeners are probably familiar with, has performed very well. And... Um, that's been a standout performer for the, for the super fund. Now let's flip over to insurance now. Life insurance, TPD, trauma and income protection. What are your attitude towards having appropriate levels of insurance cover? Well, I think you need them all. They, offer, they all offer different purposes. The way I've structured mine is to the life insurance is structured to care for the, my family and dependents uh, if I should if I should die. Uh, the trauma insurance is geared more to uh, fund the income gap between my um, income protection insurance kicking in and should that be required. So that, that's how I've structured it. It's like a tiered um, insurance according to different different life events. Now, you mentioned off-air before we went to air that you actually made a claim and that mm. it was fantastic sort of to have that cover in place. Can you elaborate a bit on what happened there? Yes. Yeah, so now five going six years ago, I, I was unfortunate to, to suffer cancer, be diagnosed with cancer, and one in three Australians do get cancer, so it's not something to uh, ignore, and it's a, it's a matter of what sort rather than if. Uh, so as such, the insurance was terribly important because I was off work for a number of months and, and there's a number of months to really get back to feeling a full functional capacity and uh, the insurance was invaluable at that time just to remove the 
financial worries of everything from uh, house payments to school fees to car payments, general living expenses, and um, it meant that side of things was managed. And also the insurance agents through my fund investment managers uh, dealt with the, the toing and froing on the paperwork, so it wasn't a, wasn't a difficult uh, process to, to deal with. Now, um, the fun aspects of life. I mean, mm. work is fun, but let's talk about what happens after hours. You play golf? I do. How often do you get out on the golf course these days? Uh, very four or six weeks. It's nowhere near enough to have any degree of confidence, but enough to, to enjoy it. Fantastic. And let, let's go back to this part that you touched on earlier in our talk when you mentioned that you are ticketed as a ski instructor. Yes, yeah. No, it's, uh, that's one of the most enjoyable aspects of my life. I, I really enjoy snow skiing and arguably if it paid as, uh, as uh, reliably as, as healthcare, I might have pursued a career there. But uh, um, No, I, I taught skiing in Austria when I was at university and uh, that was really enjoyable as a holiday. Uh, we're teaching English tourists who are coming to Austria and uh, we everything from either scratch beginners to um, uh, beginner skiers to, to intermediate level. And then we'd be able to show them the, the mountains and that, that was a lot of fun. Uh, and then towards the end of university, I went to Canada and, and did a, a more formal ski instructor qualification, which again was fantastic because I was able to ski at a much higher level than I'd ever anticipated being able to ski in my life, as well as being a great holiday and a, and a, and a great um, a great ski resort, which is Blackcomb, Blackcomb Whistler. So did you actually put your medical studies on hold at any point or was this what happened at the end of each year? No, well, that's, that's a good thing with, of course, winter in the north being over our summer. There's a, a good three months, sometimes longer, between university years to go and do life experiences like that. So I took that opportunity to to pursue those, those outside things. Just dovetailed in beautifully, didn't it? it so did, yeah. As soon as your last exam was finished, you were basically out of here onto the plane. Yeah over the other side of the – into the northern hemisphere yeah. and straight to the middle of skiing and winter. Absolutely. <laughs> I love it. Last question for you. Thank you ever so much for what you've done today. This has been very interesting. T- tell us about your Aston Martin. Uh-huh. That's another indulgence that uh, uh, I treated myself to that actually after after my, my, um, my cancer experience. And um, it's a wonderful car. Arguably not that practical, but uh, it sounds good and looks good, and uh, I do enjoy driving it. Get a lot of pleasure from it, and uh, and driving with, uh, with with friends and colleagues who have um, other interesting cars. It's a enjoyable way to meet uh, different people and, and have a different different experience in life. Something I noticed about your car: the first thing was the sound. Mm. Now, is it a V eight? It is. Yeah. It is just amazing. Has it got a special sound system on it? Like. You can hear it from miles away, and it's not too loud. Mm. It just sounds absolutely fantastic. And that was the reason, correct me if I'm wrong, you bought the car. Uh, it certainly was. <laughs> that's not the reason, but it certainly does stir the emotions, and it did make it difficult to be objective in, in making that purchase. But uh, they come with a fairly standard uh, exhaust system, it's a stainless uh, steel exhaust system. It does have bypass valves on it so that it can be quieter. Uh, around town, but uh, when you um, are on the open road and open it up, it uh, does become a lot louder. That's right. Fantastic. Well, thank you ever so much, Doug, for being part of this podcast today. Really enjoyed having you as a guest. And once again, thanks very much. Thank you. So I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Thanks for tuning in. 
We're going to be bringing you these podcasts on a weekly basis. We hope they're really useful. And if you find them useful, please share them. And if you go to iTunes and give us a review, that'd be awesome. Or put some comments in the show notes. And if you think that you're a person who would like to come on the show as a guest, please reach out to us at themedicalaccountant.co. Send us an email and we'd love to have you on the show.